You're listening to Bitcoin and Markets. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. My name is Anson Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. Thank you for joining me on episode 22. Man, I'm loving this new format. I got the bits and pieces and um, Altcoinville, you know, broken out so I can go through each individual little thing. As it comes up, I just record a little spot for that. Um, it saves me time and I think it makes things a little bit more logical for you guys to follow the episode through. I'm also thinking about posting these separately. So I will just do like a full episode, but then I'll also break it out. Maybe you're only you only care about Allcoinville or the bits and pieces kind of like news that's going on. So maybe that's the only thing you care about. You just listen to that 10, 15 minutes. Thinking about doing that, tell me what you guys think. But I do like the new format. I hope you do too. If you're willing to support the show or if you'd like to support the show, head on over to BitcoinandMarkets.com. That's where you'll find all the show notes with the links and stuff like that. But each one also has a QR code that you can donate. I do try to get the show notes posted immediately with the show. If there is any sort of big gap uh, where the show notes are not posted, I will tweet out, hey, episode 22 show notes are posted now. Thanks for listening or something like that. Follow me on Twitter for updates about the show. All right, first up, let's break right into bits and pieces. Bits and pieces. Okay, bits and pieces. This is the part of the show where I talk about news items that I find around the interwebs. Uh, They can do with Bitcoin, technology, economics, politics. I try not to rant about them. I just give them uh, kind of as a news update plus a little bit of of opinion. Let's hit the first one. I have two ransomware stories, and they're kind of connected. The first one is via Business Insider back from August 11th, 2016. A cybersecurity CEO says the problem of ransomware is now so bad the banks are buying cryptocurrencies so that they're ready to pay off criminals in their file if their files are held to ransom. And this is a, the Malwarebytes CEO, Marcin Kleczynski. Kleczynski? Man, it's some Polish name I can't pronounce. But anyway, he has a few good quotes here. Uh, and, you know, he's, this is a cybersecurity firm and they are actively investigating this because they have clients that are coming under this type of attack. He says, quote, we see companies from 25 employees or people all the way to 250,000 people getting hit with ransomware. Their survey shows that 54% of businesses had come under attack from ransomware in the last 12 months. The survey contacted 540 companies and it found that most commonly targeted businesses were healthcare or in the financial industry. I talked to a couple of banks and they say that they have 50 to 100 Bitcoin ready at all times in a wallet to deploy if a ransomware attack hits, he says. Having 50 to 100 Bitcoins on hand isn't a small sum. It's between currently I think 25 to $50,000 worth of Bitcoin on hand at any time. That is still small potatoes, if you ask me. But it shows that they are they're starting to stockpile this. 
Now let's move on to the next story, which is from Education Guide to Everything. It's at educationguide2.com. How ransomware became a billion-dollar nightmare for businesses. Now, according to the FBI, they say that ransomware attacks cost their victims a total of $209 million in the first three months of 2016. Compare, that's huge in comparison to $24 million in all of 2015. But it goes on to say that that's probably underreported. Dado, or Dado, which is a Connecticut-based cybersecurity company, they have done also, they've also done a survey of 1,100 IT professionals and they found that nearly 92% had clients that suffered ransomware attacks in the last year, including 40% whose clients had sustained at least six attacks. That's crazy. Um, and it, their, their survey found that less than one in four ransomware incidents are reported to authorities. Yeah, so it can result in downtime, et cetera, et cetera. Another piece here is, that the average ransom was between $100 and $2,000. But overall, Datto, the cybersecurity firm, estimates that $350 million have been paid out in ransom in the past year. That's quite a bit higher than the $209 million. They might be uh, putting in their like, lost productivity time and stuff like that. A few episodes ago, I did touch on ransomware and how it's going to be growing. I can see it moving into IT departments, um, or at least a position specifically for ransomware moving in there, or, or even line items on budgets of companies, governments, banks that have to do with ransomware. And this shows that this is right on target, these two stories. Last episode 21, I talked about Swift and how they are continually getting hacked and robbed of all these millions of dollars, well, they're going to start asking for Bitcoin pretty soon. These banks are stockpiling only 50 to 100 Bitcoins? Give me a break. These hackers are going to ask for 10,000 Bitcoins or more. A million dollar ransom on these big banks. And what does it matter? They just print the money to buy the Bitcoin. You can see it turning into some sort of Bitcoin reserve for these banks. It will be a selling point for these banks to say we have... $10,000 $10,000 of reserves in Bitcoin that sh- that speaks to their security. Um, and the regulations, how are the regulations going to come in on this? Because these banks are going to have to succumb to this regulation and they are the ones that are going to get regulated. They're in a regulatory prison, like I've said many times, and it's not going to be good. They're going to have to buy Bitcoin just to be safe and we'll see where this all leads. But uh, I think we're going to see some major, major ransoms uh, in in the near future. I fucking love this next story. It's uh, Bruce the Foundation Fenton is laying the smack down on Coin Center, and this is via Reddit. He dropped 13 points, just criticizing them like crazy over the California bit license that was just, uh, you know, put up for vote and then taken down or dismissed. I don't even think they had a vote on it, so he just tears into them. You know, Coin Center is a net negative for Bitcoin. Well, not even a net negative. It's just a huge fucking negative for Bitcoin. And it's run by a bunch of government apologists wanting to get good regulation. You know, they'll say that um, regulation is coming, so they need to get friendly regulation for Bitcoin. Well, that's not the case. Bruce Fenton lays it out that he and a group of private business, private uh, companies here, EFF, I don't really know what that is, 
Gem, Blockstream, TaskForce.is, Automatic. They're the creators of WordPress, Bitwage, Internet Archive, Purse, uh, Demand Progress, Bolt, Backslash, etc., etc., etc. They stood against this uh, California Bit license where Coin Center stood for it. They helped every step of the way. They are in a prison camp, you know, or a POW camp. They are the traitors, Coin Center is. They're the ones that help the interrogators. And of course, they'll, they'll justify it to themselves saying that, you know, we are here. We need to get the best treatment that we can, but they do so by selling out their fellow prisoners. That's what Coin Center is here. They're big traders. There, there is no such thing as good regulation. All regulation hurts the free market. All regulation does. And, <laughs> Some people will say, I've, I've had talks or arguments with people in the past. Very recently, actually, a, a one that I got kind of heated on was people think that there, there is such thing as good regulation, but there is not. All regulation hurts people because what good is regulation without enforcement? Without enforcement, regulation does not exist. Now, enforcement includes hurting people. Threatening violence against people, coercing people. And that's what Coin Center wants here. They want people to be forced to do stuff. There's no such thing as good regulation. And Bruce the Foundation Fenton says here that fighting it is worthwhile. Exactly contradictory to what Coin Center says. Coin Center says it's, it's not worthwhile to fight it. It's not going to be effective. We cannot just not have regulation. And Bruce Fenton shows that you can do that. And he lays a smackdown on him. So I love this. Check out the link in the show notes. Epicenter Bitcoin just hit their third anniversary and they put a post on Reddit about it. They they got a lot of bad comments. Uh, a lot of people calling them pump and dumpers. Uh, you know, it's turned into an altcoin show, etc., etc. Questioning their ethics like, you know, giving these pump and dumpers, these scammers, airtime and not asking them critical questions, which I think is rightly deserved. They've drank the Ethereum Kool-Aid and they think Ethereum is the end-all be-all. And if they call it the blockchain space, you automatically know they're not worth their salt. Hey, Epicenter Bitcoin, be skeptical. These altcoin, these guests that you have on, your default position should be that they are a scammer. That should be your default position, especially in this space, especially in the Bitcoin space. This is not the blockchain space, Epicenter Bitcoin. This is the Bitcoin space. So anyway, they, they got some pushback, and then they push back again, and yada, yada, yada. But I mean, my my la- my latest impression of Epicenter Bitcoin was the Stefan Tool interview, where they just let him sell the DAO to all of these people and let them get screwed the default position should be that everyone's a scammer if you're going to do an interview show epicenter bitcoin your default position you've chosen is that everyone's telling you the truth and that every project will work that's the default position and yet you say you filter out a lot of the people a lot of the possible interviews that you do but in the end the ones that you put on you don't take a skeptical approach your default position is that it is a viable project. And your d- default position should be that they are scammers. 
From that position, then you can get to the heart of the issues by asking skeptical questions, making them validate their claims. Anyways, uh, I, I pretty much use Epicenter Bitcoin these days as kind of to get a read on the scams in the space. If they're interviewing people before like a coin is pumped, it's probably going to pump pretty soon. If they've interviewed, if they interview p- people after a pump from a project that has just pumped, then that project is probably going to dump. You know, I kind of use them as a read like that in the space to kind of understand the psyche of some of these blockchain over Bitcoin people. So anyway, you say you have 10,000 downloads. I find that very hard to believe because uh, the cryptocurrency, what is it? The World Crypto Network on YouTube with mad Bitcoins in them. They, they don't get that many views. They put out a lot more videos than you got, you put out podcasts and they don't get that many views. And YouTube is probably the preferred medium, at least at this point. So anyways, um, I could go on and on about them. My last topic for bits and pieces is going to be open dime. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but it's very interesting. It's uh, a hardware wallet merged with a physical Bitcoin. So obviously you've seen hardware wallets like Trezor and uh, Ledger, but you have to be connected to the internet to spend the Bitcoins on there. You've also seen the little cashless coins, I'm guessing, or little gold coins that might have a private key or have supposed to be one Bitcoin value or something like that. Well, those those private keys aren't secure. That person that gave it to you could have written down that private key or already drained the Bitcoin from it. With this open dime, it's merging these two things. So you can get, it's a little tiny USB stick, very cheap, but um, it's purpose made to be secure. When you want to load Bitcoin on this thing, you create a wallet. It creates a private key with an address. You load it up. But you don't know the private key. All you ever see is the address. There's no way for you to find out the private key. It's provable that the creator has not, does not know the private key. The only place that this Bitcoin exists is on this USB stick. It cannot be stolen. If you want to get access to the Bitcoin, you have to break a little bit of the chip off in a certain way. And the USB lights or the the lights on the little stick flash differently. So you know if it has been compromised. Uh, Visually, both with the chip being broken and with the little lights flashing. If that chip isn't broken, but you want to check, you know, you stick it into any USB power source. Could be a battery or a computer. And um, it will flash either two lights if it's been compromised or or one green light if it hasn't been compromised. So you can check this and you know that nobody else knows the private key that's on that little USB stick. So if someone hands that to you in a cash-like transaction or for a for cash in a transaction, you can be confident that that Bitcoin is secure and you can reuse it in your next transaction or whatever the case is. It's very interesting. Um, Currently, it's not, I don't think it's ready for mass adoption or mass usage. One of the kind of limitations I see is the denomination control. Maybe they could make orange open dimes for one Bitcoin and green ones for uh, half a Bitcoin or, you know, somehow 
signal these denominations. It would be harder to prove at point of sale or something like that, that there's actually that Bitcoin on there. Um, but, you know, th that's something that they're going to have to look at for the future because I think that's one weakness that I can see in this. But it's fascinating. It's a great project. Uh, this is the type of innovation that's happening on Bitcoin that can scale Bitcoin. It, it would be completely off-chain and it would be a way to kind of scale at the margins, point of sales, the places that you might want to use Bitcoin, but I don't know, something like that. So that's OpenDime. Check it out, OpenDime.com. I also have a video link in the description or in the show notes, so check that out. They have uh, some videos out that do a great job of explaining it better than I do, I'm sure. That's it for Bits and Pieces. Let's go on to Altcoinville. Altcoinville. Altcoinville is where I talk about altcoins, all, all things altcoin, um, maybe some things that affect altcoins or um, alt, specific altcoins. Uh, last week I talked about Monero as well as Ethereum and, uh, you know, I'm not technically bullish on Monero, but I'm not bearish at this point. I mean, long term I'm bearish because I think Bitcoin will be just as private as some of these other things. But for the, for the near term, I'm not bearish on Monero. I'm neutral. That's kind of what I came away with my stuff from last week. Well, this week I talk about Zcash and I also talk about the 51 crew, which is a hacking group that's been attacking some altcoins. Let's start with, let's go with the 51 crew. Okay. 51 crew, they are. The source of some 51% attacks that are taking place against Ethereum-based blockchains. So blockchains that ride on the Ethereum computer, whatever that's called. The group simultaneously puts their mining power towards the coin while DDoSing other nodes. Krypton and Shift, two coins I've never heard of, have recently come under attack. This could be a warm-up for Ethereum Classic, but I personally think that's a stretch. Alright, so this is an article from... Crypto Hustle, and I mean, they, they have some really poignant articles. They don't do a lot of articles, but this Crypto Hustle, they, they do do some good content. They interviewed or talked to this uh, Stephanie Kent. She's the founder of Krypton, and she was one of the, the coins that were un, was under attack. They froze trading on Bittrex, and looks like they might be going to proof of stake as an emergency measure. Both Shift and Krypton refused to pay the ransom that was requested by this 51 crew. Yeah, so they're, they're looking at doing proof of stake as a temporary emergency measure until a longer term solution can be found. It appears that this 51 crew is specifically targeting smaller Ethereum blockchains. Some people suspect these attacks are dry runs for Ethereum Classic. Alright, this is all happening on Ethereum. And also that it's happening everywhere in altcoins. Everywhere you look, there's some sort of exploit or there's some sort of bug or there's some sort of hack going on. I mean, yes, you could say that the Bitfinex was a Bitcoin hack, but it wasn't hacking Bitcoin. I mean, these are specific 51% attacks against the networks. 
No one's attacking the Bitcoin network. Well, yes, they probably are, but they're not successful. So Bitcoin is secure. Again, Bitcoin is the only production blockchain of any use or any value right now. I mean, you could argue maybe Monero, but that's about it. These are all sideshows, all of these altcoins and all these hacks. Bitcoin rolls on and it's getting ready to rally. So all the news is going to be back onto Bitcoin very shortly. I'm looking forward to that. Alright, this probably is going to be a short altcoinville because I only have one more story here. And this is Zcash. Uh, I learned about Zcash a few weeks ago and I liked it at first glance. This is before the Monero thing, um, Monero pump. Because I I knew this fungibility and privacy is going to be a big topic in the next year or so. So I thought that you know Zcash might be able to fill this role. But it looks like Monero beat him to the punch. Also, I learned that Zcash is all buddy-buddy with Ethereum. That pretty much seals the deal for me. They they have this uh, slide on one of their slideshows that says Zcash plus Ethereum equals heart. Oh, isn't that sweet? <laughs> if you're counting, I mean, with the 51 crew and stuff, that's way more than three strikes against Ethereum. So... It's not looking good for Zcash if they want to be buddy-buddy with Ethereum. They're going to go down with a sinking ship, in my opinion. If they are being buddy-buddy with Ethereum, it shows me that they don't have the ability to evaluate economics or evaluate any sort of viability of an idea at all in this space. They are good programmers. Don't get me wrong. They probably are good mathematicians or cryptographers or programmers or whatever. Engineers. But developers will dig through their code and find what works and what doesn't, what's revolutionary and what's not. And they'll throw the rest out and they'll put it onto Bitcoin or a sidechain. I mean, some Ethereum heads, they might buy into this Zcash because they're all buddy-buddy with Ethereum. But it's very limited future for Zcash and especially with their relationship with Ethereum. But they also got beat out by Monero. They got beat to the punch by Monero, so... That's all I got to say about that. That's all for Altcoinville. Pretty short today. Let's move on to the featured article. Featured article. This article was sent to me by a listener, and I, I really appreciate you guys out there that send links into me. You can do so on Twitter or via the website. There's a contact form there. You just send it that way. Uh, this is a big one, uh, and it comes via CNN Money, and it's about the Wells Fargo debacle. You guys probably read this. came out yesterday or like uh, Thursday, something like that, this week. But I'm just going to go through this here and read it, read the important parts at least, and then talk about it a little bit. The headline is 5,300 Wells Fargo employees fired over 2 million phony accounts. Everyone hates paying banking fees, but imagine paying fees on a ghost account you didn't even sign up for. That's exactly what happened to Wells Fargo customers nationwide. On Thursday, federal regulators said Wells Fargo employees secretly created millions of unauthorized bank and credit card accounts without their customers knowing it since 2011. The phony accounts earned the bank unwarranted fees and allowed Wells Fargo employees to boost their sales figures and make more money. Quote, Wells Fargo employees secretly opened unauthorized accounts to hit sales targets and receive bonuses, Richard Corday said, director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. 
It's fired 5,300 employees over the, quote, last few years. So not due to this, but uh, due to them finding out, or federal regulations, but because they knew about this. They knew about what was going on. Over the last few years, they fired these people. 1.5 million deposit accounts were opened that had not been authorized, and 500,000 credit card accounts. The CFPB, that's the Consumer, what the fuck was it? The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, they were only created in 2011. These federal regulators said Wells Fargo employees secretly created millions of unauthorized bank and credit card accounts without their customers knowing it since 2011. And that just happens to be when the Protection Bureau started. So was this, was there something going on before that? Probably. I bet. All right, so the fines were $185 million, along with $5 million to refund customers. They take responsibility, blah, blah, blah. Wells Fargo is the highest market valuation among any bank in America worth just north of $250 billion. Not anymore. <laughs> it's going down. So uh, what happened with this? Now, this was really only found out when people started suing. They they noticed that their accounts had been opened in their name, these customers, and they started suing. Um, that's the only way that it got brought up to the Consumer Protection Agency or the Bureau, whatever it is. Consumers must be able to trust their banks, said Mike Fuhrer, the Los Angeles City Attorney who joined the settlement. Foyer's office sued Wells Fargo in May 2015 over allegations of unauthorized accounts. After filing the suit, his office received more than 1,000 calls and emails from customers, as well as current or former Wells Fargo employees about the allegations. Wells Fargo declined to say when it hired a consulting firm to investigate the allegations. However, a person familiar with the matter told CNN Money the bank launched their review after the L.A. lawsuit was filed, and that was in May 2015. This is a pretty big story. I wish it would get more coverage. It shows how banks are losing it. This, of course, is not specifically the bank doing this. They ended up firing these people. But 5,300 employees. 5,300. That's damn near institutional. And it's been happening for years, probably even prior to 2011, that we don't know about. I mean, if it were 10,000, would they, would the bank want to say 10,000 or would they want to stick with what the protection bureau people found out at 5,300? Of course they would stop at 5,300. This is institutional. Banks will stop at nothing to scrimp and steal every last penny that they can from you. And they're going to run customers off. Especially for savings. And even checking. I mean, for the few next few years, yeah, the banks will still be able to be around. But slowly but surely, Bitcoin is going to be taking that away from them too. Right now, you can save in Bitcoin. In a few years, you'll be able to transact in Bitcoin. Or use it as a checking everyday usage. They're going to run people off these banks. People are going to run to Bitcoin or maybe gold and silver or something. And the banks don't have a choice to do that. They're in a regulatory prison. Their business model depends on this being a trusted third party. And they're going to run people off. It's institutionalized. It is what they do. And these 5,300 people, they are just 
a symptom of a greater disease. They, they suffer from trickle-down ethics. I don't know if I've said this on the show. This is a concept that I've had for a while, and it, it's based on, okay, so the government has an ethical code, and that includes what's, you know, right and wrong, and stealing is right, or stealing is good and okay, killing, jailing, um, all these things are okay. I think Julia from Brave the World said it best. She had a video a couple years ago that was called Escaping the Feedback Loop. She had all these quotes from philosophers, thinkers of the past, and she did a really great job. I recommend checking out that video. But here's here's a quick clip on what she has to say about government. To be governed is to be at every operation, every transaction, noted, registered, counted, taxed, stamped, measured, numbered, addressed, licensed, authorized, prevented, forbidden, reformed, corrected, punished. Under the pretext of public utility and in the name of general interest to be placed under contribution to be drilled, fleeced, exploited, monopolized, extorted from, squeezed, hoaxed, robbed. Then at the slightest resistance, at the slightest word of complaint, to be repressed, fined, vilified, harassed, hunted down, abused, clubbed, disarmed, bound, choked, imprisoned, judged, condemned, shot, deported, sacrificed, sold, betrayed. And to crown all, mocked, ridiculed, and dishonored. That is government. That is its justice. That is its morality. All right, so Julia from Brave the World, check out her YouTube channel. She has great stuff. That that video right there is about six minutes long, and man, it is awesome. So yeah, the trickle-down ethics, the way it goes is, um, so the government has this ethical code of what's right and wrong, and that gets trickled down to the next layer, which would be the uber-rich or the powerful corporations, etc., etc. And they go in and get, they lobby the government for these special favors. Like, they want this stolen money. So they don't have any problem with going in and doing this corruption because the government itself is pure corruption. So then these these large businesses do it. And then it trickles down to the lower layer because the lower people, uh, the middle Mid-sized businesses, they see these large corporations doing it, so they want to do it. Or maybe they get executives on these mid-sized businesses from the bigger businesses, and, and these practices move down the chain here. Then the, the very small guys, they want to get licensed. They want to get their IP done. They want to get um, these subsidies or grants from the from the government. So all of these this ethical code of killing and pillaging and, and stealing moves down the chain. Moves down through the, the chain of, of business. And of course, the last people are the, the poor. The, that's the great big mass of people at the bottom. And once that ethical code gets instilled there in the working class, the working poor, once that ethical code of stealing and killing gets ingrained there, it's it's basically over for that system because they will just either slide into complete authoritarianism like Venezuela or they will, there will be a revolution. So one of the two things will be the end result. But yeah, trickle-down ethics, that I came up with that a couple of years ago. I don't know. <laughs> I, I've never seen it anywhere. Maybe I'll have to write something about it. But anyways, all right. That is my idea of trickle-down ethics. And the banks are going to suffer from this or they obviously suffer from this right now 
And it, it, this idea even works within a corporation itself. So the, the CEO, the C-suite people, they have a code of ethics, right? Maybe the CFO is doing some shady business and it trickles down to his um, assistants and, and the other people, the VPs, and, and on and on and on down the, down the, the chain. So it works with inside of a company, which obviously Wells Fargo is horrible right now. But it also works in a larger economy as and society as a whole. Thanks for sending this in. Uh, like I said, if you guys have other articles you'd like me to talk about, please send those to me on Twitter or via the website. That's it. Let's move on to Flashpoint. 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 This is the part of the show where I talk about geopolitics, politics, international trade, um, and social unrest. I mean, there, there's all sorts of stuff going on around the world, and it can get worse very fast. You know, they say that collapse happens little by little and then all at once. Of course, with Bitcoin, Bitcoin is getting, is building, but the traditional markets, the traditional models in this world are collapsing little by little. And eventually it will be all at once. And so these flashpoints kind of are maybe looking at, you know, the weaknesses. These are the weak points that could happen all at once. All right. Now, this story is probably the most underreported story in the financial media right now. And I mean, international trade, everything, although it hits all of those spots. And that is the Hanjin shipping bankruptcy. I noticed this back on September 2nd, and if you guys follow me on Twitter, you'll notice my like tweet storm or mini tweet storm that I had on this. I think it's a really big deal. It ties into a topic I talked about on a previous show, and that's the Baltic Dry Index. The Baltic Dry Index is a measure of international trade or international shipping. Uh, it's relatively new. It's been from the early 80s, I think, is when it started. It's at all-time lows, or just off all-time lows. And it goes in cyclical patterns, this Baltic Dry Index. So it goes, you know, you can see every couple years. I'll put a link to this in the show notes so you guys can check out this. Or I'll tweet it out. If you guys go to my Twitter and you'll look, look at, you know, a couple posts ago or something like that on my profile, you'll be able to see that. I, I put this picture here, but it goes up and down. Every year or two, there's a little bump. Uh, and you can see kind of a larger general trend that lasts about 10 years, maybe a little bit more cyclical bear, cyclical bull markets. But since 2009, it's been almost straight down to the right. And this is more than generational decline because it's from the early 80s and that's a generation or more. And we haven't seen this type of thing here. So it's in, it's in a more than generational decline. And I think it's tied into globalization and consumerism and obviously monetary policy, but we'll get into that towards the end of this. Now, Hanjin Shipping, they are one of the largest ship lines, shipping lines in the world, and they declared bankruptcy at the end of August. At the beginning of September, just a couple days later, they, their ships were starting to get turned away from their destinations, their destination ports, because the ports didn't know if they could pay. So there's this huge-ass ship that's going to take 12 hours or whatever to unload, and it's supposed to cost the shipping line, 
you know, thirty to forty thousand dollars per vessel to unload. Well, they don't the ports didn't know if these guys could pay. So they said, We ain't unloading you. You can't come in here. So all these all these ships are stranded. There's there's eighty five ships stranded around the world at different ports. And you know, these are those big ass container ships. You know the pictures of where the the they're they're semi containers and they are stacked like eight high on these fucking ships. And these things are just sitting out there. For the last couple of weeks, they they haven't been able to move. And now it's starting to turn into a, a, a somewhat of a humanitarian disaster because these these crews of these ships, five to say twenty people per ship, they don't have provisions. They had provisions for a two-week trip, however long the trip was going to be, and that's it. Well, now they've been out there for an extra week or two, and they're starting to starve. There's reports of, um, I think it was off of China. There's like four or five Hanjin ships there, and they were brought provisions out. Someone brought them provisions out for the crews of those ships. But there's 85 ships worldwide that are stranded. We're talking hundreds of people starving. But anyways, um, okay, so why is this so bad? So what? Well, it's a supply chain issue. So if I'm, if I'm a business and I've ordered some parts from China and I'm waiting, well, if I'm waiting three or four weeks extra, that could put off my, my product that I need to ship to somebody else to do their product. Or whatever. It's a supply chain. Plus, it's, it's even, you know, consumer facing retail products that are on these, these containers. And these retailers are trying to build up inventory for the end of year sales, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they can't do that. Plus, costs are going sky high. So if you take out 8% of the, the volume, you're going to have a demand on the 92% that's left and it's going to shoot prices through the roof, which it already has. In the last week, it's gone up 56% already to ship things across from Asia to the United States. They have, um, let's see, the average cost in the last week, the last seven days has gone up 56% to $4,423 per container. And that's from 2835 a week earlier. I mean, there's ripple effects. So say that, you know, the every consumer facing product will now have 10, 15, 20% higher cost because of all of these different shipping delays, um, cost to ship the goods. And so people will spend less at uh, Christmas, et cetera, et cetera. So this could be really bad. There could be ripple effects. And on top of this, Hanjin has a fleet of containers, not just a fleet of ships, but they have a fleet of containers. And these containers are shipped on other shipping lines. So even the bigger shipping lines than Hanjin. Hanjin is, I think, maybe number five or six, something like that, in the world for the size of shipping line. So they ship containers on other shipping lines. And if these those shipping lines don't get paid for their space that they've given to Hanjin, say they... 5% of the largest shipping line is Hanjin containers. Well, Hanjin can't fucking pay them. So now they're out 5%. Maybe that was their margin and they're fucked. Now they have to declare bankruptcy. You know, it's this, this 
domino effect that has to do with just in time and also uh, massive amounts of debt. You know, not, these guys might run a small profit, but they're, oh, they're constantly expanding, constantly going more into debt. It's this whole debt driven, credit driven economy that's driving globalization and consumerism, you know, and it all stems from monetary policy. That's what this all stems from. I'm not against globalization. I'm not against it. I'm an anarchist. I don't care what people do. If you can make money, do it. If you're a consumer and you want these little um, $3 toys, plastic pieces of crap toys, for nothing. I mean, I I have three daughters. And of course, daughters, they like Barbies. They like My Little Ponies, whatever. Okay. Now... We've noticed this. Look, they, they get a new, let's say my little pony that costs five, six bucks. I don't know exactly how much. And they get it home and they play with it for 10 minutes. And then they fight over it with their sisters and then it's, that's it. Where the paper towel roll runs out and I give them this paper towel roll and they play with that thing for days. They color it with markers. They do all sorts of stuff. To this little paper towel roll that costs nothing. The, the consumerist driven plastic revolution is crap. We're sold it by the commercials and the advertising. I mean, I watch my girls, little girls eyes when they're watching TV and the commercial comes on for some Barbie or something. And man, it's just, it's like crack. They just can't look away. And then of course they want it. It's all dri- it's all consumer driven. And I'm not against globalization. I'm against this fake economy that we have. And it's all based on monetary policy. Cheap money from the Fed. People cannot make economic calculations. And I'm not, t- I'm, I'm also, I'm, I am talking about the individual, the individual dad or the individual family out there is it's very hard to make economic calculations for the future but the most important economic calculation that people can't make is how to value debt should i borrow this money to expand my business okay well it's going to cost me 1% for this loan so yes i can afford that and i will do that but that's because the interest rate is artificially low. Everything looks like a good investment at 1%. Or every, every every business idea looks like a good business idea at 1%. So you make it. Are we going to do this this year? Sure. Are we going to make this product? Sure. We'll finance it. 1%. 0%. We're awesome. We're great. We can do this. We can scale. Of course, they push it out and out and out more and more and more and more. If the interest rates say were um, set by the market, it might be seven, eight, nine, ten percent, and that business would be like, "Oh, do I want to expand my business? Oh shit, I can't afford ten percent, so no, I'm not going to expand my business." Okay, great. It's not this ever-growing globalization of debt and credit that's unsustainable in the long run. And I'm not saying you get rid of business cycles; you won't. Because people have irrational exuberance and they get going on things and that's just how it works. 
And everything has to come crashing back to reality every once in a while. But the monetary policy has driven this huge, perverted wave of globalization and consumerism. Those go hand in hand. So that's what I'm against. I'm not against this globalization and stuff, shit like that. But all right, this Hanjin is pretty big. I think it could have lots of little spider webs and stuff. And I always say, what a tangled web we weave. So everybody's connected. There's banks connected to this. There's fucking credit default swaps connected to this. There's der- uh, derivatives of all sorts and flavors connected to Hanjin shipping for sure. So everything is going to have to take a haircut. And that could, and you know, the, the bankers don't fucking like to take haircuts. The bankers don't take haircuts. People take haircuts. The public take haircuts. The little guys, the little, the retailers take haircuts, not the fucking banks because the banks control the system and banks hate losses. They hate just like everyone else. I mean, if you, if you're a business owner and you see bad economic times, like maybe you can't make your loan payment. You don't know how you're going to make your loan payment next month. That's a fucking shitty feeling. And bankers hate that feeling just as much as you do. But guess what? They can borrow at 0% or basically 0%. Or they can get bailouts. So they can avoid that feeling. They can avoid the bankruptcy. Anyway, this, it's, it's getting bad that the international shipping doesn't lie. Okay. This, the economy, the world economy is slowing down. It's getting worse and worse. And I think we're kind of close to a tipping point. And like I said, collapse happens little by little and then all at once. And Bitcoin fits in here perfectly. I mean, it's, it's a great investment for holding for the future. Uh, there's a lot of debate right now. The use cases of Bitcoin, you know, a lot of people are saying it's the dark markets. That's what's driving Bitcoin or gambling. Yeah, I think that is. But by far and away, the biggest use of Bitcoin is holding. Period. You cannot argue with that. Something like 80% of coins have not moved in months. Months. Most Bitcoin, the use case, is holding. It's like an insurance policy or speculation. Whatever you, however you want to look at it. And that fits right into this collapse type stuff with the international monetary policy wacky world. And that's exactly what we have. The, the whole world is out of whack. The whole economy, banking, finance, money, it's all out of whack. And Bitcoin compared to that looks free. It looks harmonious and serene. The network, the governance, the monetary policy, everything looks so beautiful compared to the legacy financial system. Everyone's kind of looking for an exit door, and Bitcoin is that exit door. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. You can follow me on Twitter for all my stupid rantings and ravings and uh, words of wisdom or whatever. Uh, Also, visit me at bitcoinmarkets.com. There you'll find a QR code and all the show notes to donate if you'd like to support the show. That's going to be it. 
Have a good weekend, guys. See you next time. Bye. You've been listening to Bitcoin and Markets. Please like, subscribe, and we'll see you next time.